0: All right, we've been talking about love. That's a good thing, talking about the Father's love. Um, Every once in a while, I get asked why I don't talk more about the Spirit. Every once in a while, someone comes up and asks me that. Why don't you talk more about the Spirit? And you know, it kind of surprises me when I get that question because I'm always thinking about the Spirit and I'm always including the Spirit in any expression of God that I do. And so in my mind... The Spirit's always present, but I realize I'm not always expressing that. So I thought what would be a good thing to do today is to, you know, answer that question, to a certain degree at least, in, in the way that I typically do. And I understand why, because the New Testament is central on the action of the Spirit. There is the baptism of the Spirit that is prerequisite for us to be able to, to really connect with Jesus at the kingdom level as he talks about it. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, there is something like, I don't know, I think the numbers all vary, but there may be, you know, 80 or 70 or 80 mentions of the Spirit in the Old Testament. There are two to three times that many in the New Testament. And not only that, in the Old Testament, the Spirit is always, the word that's used there is a stand-in for God's presence. But in the New Testament, Spirit takes on much more of its own agency, personhood. You know, Jesus is compelled by the Spirit into the wilderness. And things happen with the Spirit in terms of informing them, the people and empowering them. And so there's a sense that Spirit is much more than just God's presence. That Spirit is doing something more. There's something more going on. Um, we were having a uh, one of our Wednesday um, studies, and uh, a woman gave kind of an impassioned share about the action of the Spirit in her life. And she was just so animated about it and talking about how the Spirit informs her and, and empowers her and, and fills her and indwells her. And it was it was just beautiful, the way that she expressed it. And then afterwards, uh, I had someone come up to me and say, when are you going to be talking about the Trinity? And I said, well, yeah, I do from time to time. And he says, you know, in, in the way that he heard that description of spirit, to him it sounded like maybe it was somehow apart from God. And then he wanted to see how the whole thing synthesized again. And I thought that was a fascinating exchange between the two of them. And it's like, okay, maybe we should talk a little bit about Trinity and how all, this thing, all these things fit together because they need to fit together together. So let's talk about Trinity a bit this morning. But what I want to do is I want to do it in and within the context of the theme of love that we've been talking about for the last few weeks now. Because that's really where this whole thing has to come to. We talked about how the fact that if there's going to be any good news, it's going to be centered on God's love. We talked last week about how the fact that this love is so great, so infinitely great, that it's too much for us to be able to understand. Remember we talked about here be dragons, you know, going off the edge of those ancient maps where the, where the dragons were actually drawn into the waters to depict uncharted seas where any promise or precipice was, was present. And, and it's like this is where Jesus is leading us in every one of his stories and every one of his teachings. He's trying to get us to jump off our maps. Because as long as we're only circling in what is familiar, as long as we're clinging to what we think we already know, We're never going to be able to apprehend the kind of love that he's trying to convey to us. He's trying to show us something that has its roots in heaven, not on earth. And so our earthly experience becomes our limitation to being able to actually see what is going on here. So my thought is, can this idea of Trinity, this theological principle of Trinity that is a cornerstone of Christianity, give us some more clues about Father's love, the nature of God's love, which is so important. So if you would allow me to geek out for just a minute historically, what I wanted to do is kind of set the stage. You know, first of all, the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. All right? But it is alluded to very strongly. In fact, if you take a look on your... On your um, he's, I'm sure he's going to put it up there. At Matthew 28, verse 19, this is where Jesus says, go out to all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that is one of the major texts that the church used from Scripture to say, hey, there is this threeness that is happening here. In, and so there, there's other... Um, passages as well, that are alluding to Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, for a monotheistic people, when you think about the first followers of Jesus, they were Jews. Jews are fiercely monotheistic. God is one. God is sovereign. And in any way, to chip away at that oneness would be abomination to them. But here is a Jewish people that have all their lives experienced their God as the king of the universe. To this day, Jews call God the king of the universe. The creator who brought everything out of nothing for them. But now they've experienced this God in the person of Jesus. A flesh and blood person that they ate with and laughed with and traveled with and held and cried with. And then when he is gone... Then they're experiencing God as this indwelling, this spiritual presence that is so strong, so palpable, so empowering, that it can't be understood in any other way as another person. They understood him as a personality that they could connect with. What is a people to do? What's a mother to do? You know that God is one. Everything about your tradition for thousands of years is the oneness of God. And yet now you've experienced God as Father and Son and Spirit. How do you understand that? How do you express that? How do you go about doing that? Well, this occupied... I kid you not, the first 300 years. Actually, if you want to get technical about it, it was about the first 350 years of the church's existence was preoccupied with trying to understand this very question. How do we understand the nature of God now that we have Jesus here? Now that we have spirit here, how do we do this? If you take a look in your inserts, this is where it really gets theologically deep, but I'm just going to go over this very quickly, and it's nothing that you have to remember, and there's not going to be a test afterwards. But this idea of monarchianism, all these big theological terms are pointing to this people's quest to try to explain how do we understand God. Well, monarchianism comes from the word mono, of course, one, and so it says, absolutely, this is the Jewish God, this is the Jewish mono, monad. God is one nature, one essence. In Greek, the word is "ousios," and that will become important in a second. But God is just one nature, one essence, and also one person, one substance. Hypostasis means the underlying substance of the underlying reality of something. And so, Monarchianism says it's one God, one substance, one person. Simple, straightforward. You know, in that conception, Jesus and Spirit don't really exist as part of the Godhead. There are two Corollaries, two modifications of Monarchianism. The first one is modalism, okay? And the other is Sabellianism. They're very closely related, but these were big in the first three centuries of the church. They say that God is one nature, a one essence, and one person, but operates in three modes, okay? One God, but operating as Father in terms of creation, operating as Son in terms of reconciliation, if you want to use that word, and operating as Spirit in sanctification. So God is experienced modally through these different modes, but there's still just one. Another idea, subordinationism. And Arianism was the, the main example of subordinationism. Here, God is still one nature and one person, but... Jesus and Spirit exist, but are subordinate to God. They are divine, but they are not deity. There's a fine distinction for you. They are created beings, right? And they are subordinate to Father. Now, this gives a lot of backing in the New Testament, they thought, because Jesus is always talking about being subordinate to the Father, being in submission to the Father, and he only does what the Father says. But all of these were eventually declared heretical to the church as the church grew There's one more, adoptionism. Adoptionism still, God is one person, but Jesus was adopted as God's son, as the Christ at his baptism. And so he was brought in. He was fully man and brought in. These are all the different ideas. The church is just writhing and changing and shaking and trying to figure this thing out. But there's a competing thread that comes all through this 300-year period as well, and it's Trinitarianism. And that's the one that we're familiar with. God is one nature, one essence, one usios, right? But three persons, all of the same essence as well, the same hypostases. And so the term that they used for this was homoousios, which means same substance. One God, but three persons, all of the same substance, all co-eternal, all co-equal. And of course, this is something that the human mind can't process. You can't resolve this in your mind. And so the church just said, well, it's a mystery. All right? But this is what was actually then voted on at the Council of Nicene. So so if you fast forward to the fourth century, the this Aryan controversy especially this, this controversy between is God one or is God three or how does this all work is tearing the church apart. And the emperor Constantine wants to bring it all together again. He sees Christianity as a unifying force within the empire as he's trying to put it back together again. So he calls the first church council at Nicaea in 325. 1,800 bishops from all over the, the, the Roman world. And what they come up with is this formula. The Nicene Creed that you have probably heard of is the expression of that, you know, that Jesus is coequal, equal co-eternal, and is God in every sense that the Father is. But they didn't talk about the Spirit. The Nicene Creed from 325 doesn't really include the Spirit. We have to go another 50 years to the Council of Constantinople in 381 where we get the Spirit added in the new creed that was crafted at that council. So we had another 50 years of fighting over this, even after the, the council at Nicaea decided that Trinitarianism was, was the, the actual Orthodox belief of the church. And still, there's another 50 years of fighting. And even after that goes down, there's still more fighting. There was fighting then over the nature of Jesus and how he was both God and man at the same time. And that was a huge controversy. So it was wild and woolly in the early church trying to figure this stuff out. How do we understand God? And you know, when you really look at the historical evidence that is available to us, what you see is a people sincerely trying to work this out. Boy, it created fights to the death. You know, people were killed over this. They were exiled. Their property was taken. All sorts of things happened as as this was being worked out. They took it seriously because they really wanted to understand the nature of the Godhead. Unfortunately, we talked about with life, it's nothing you can actually understand. But the church needed to take some kind of position, and the church did this. And so, all of this is going on. You know the two words there? The Trinitarians used the word homoousios, which, which means same substance. The non-Trinitarians used homoiousios, which means similar substance. The only difference between those two words is the Greek letter iota. Have you ever heard the expression, doesn't make an iota of difference? It comes from there. And, you know, the best spin on it is that, you know, an, if it doesn't make an iota of difference, then it's the same thing. But you can sort of imagine the lay people walking around after 50 years of hearing these guys fight, <laughs> you know? Does it really make an iota of difference, you know? Does it really matter? And, and does it really matter? This is what we need to talk about. How does it matter if it matters? Does it really make an iota of difference. Now I want to get out of geek mode here for a second. Back 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 to the real world. How can we understand the Trinity in a way that will be helpful to us? Now that you have a little bit of background and the difficulty the church had arriving at the conclusion that they did, how can we understand it that's going to help us as soon as we walk out that door this morning? How is it going to help us to understand the nature of God's love that is so central to our ability to live in kingdom as Jesus is calling us to do. I think the Eastern, especially the Cappadocian fathers, there were three of them. There was Basil the Great and his brother Gregory of Nyssa, and then there was uh, Gregory of, I can't remember what city he was. He eventually became the Patriarch of Constantinople, like the Eastern Pope. These three Eastern fathers, they would have lived and worked within what is now Turkey they were also instrumental in that period between the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople of bringing the church back to a Trinitarian formula. But they did it in an interesting way. They coined a term called perichoresis. And if you take a look at your your um, your inserts again, I, I tried to give you some of these notes. Perichoresis comes from two Greek words. Peri means around, and korene is the word we get choreography from, all right? It means to give way, to make room, to move, to step, or to dance. Literally, if you take perichoresis, it means circle dance. And the idea of these Cappadocian Fathers was, is the only way that we are going to understand the nature of the Trinity is in motion, And we've talked about here so many times that the word ruach in Hebrew or ruha in Aramaic means wind, breath, and spirit all at the same time. Now, wind and breath are defined by motion. If there's no motion in wind, it's not wind. It's just air. If there's no motion in breath, you're dead. There's no life. And so the idea here in in the Jewish mind, putting these three terms together, was that spirit was always in motion. It was defined by motion. Without motion, it didn't exist. Without motion, it wasn't God. And these Cappadocian fathers are saying, "You know what? The Trinity exact, it works in exactly the same way. It's always in motion. It's like the circle dance, which was an ethnic Greek dance, and it, it's it's like individuals moving in such a way that they blur into oneness. But it's it, it's the motion that is really at issue. I wanted to read something from you from a." A contemporary Methodist pastor, I think he really nails this idea of what those Cappadocian fathers were trying to get at. He writes The theologians in the early church tried to describe this wonderful reality that we call Trinity. If any of you have ever been to a Greek wedding, you may have seen their distinctive way of dancing. It's called perichoresis. There are not two dancers, but at least three. They start to go in circles, weaving in and out in this very beautiful pattern of motion with each other. Eventually they are dancing so quickly yet so effortlessly that as you look at them it just becomes a blur. Their individual identities are part of a larger dance. The early church fathers and mothers looked at that dance, perichoresis, and said, that's what the Trinity is like. It's a harmonious set of relationship in which there is a mutual giving and receiving. This relationship is called love. And it's what the Trinity is all about, this perichoresis, this dance of love. And then good old C.S. Lewis writes, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic pulsating activity. I like that. God is a dynamic pulsing activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-person life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Some of you may not be old enough to remember flip books. Does everyone know what a flip book is? You know, we used to go to, to uh, Disneyland as a kid, and you could buy flip books. You know, and it would be of Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse, and it was just a little book. You know, there'd be I don't know. 30-40 pages in there and what it was it had all of the animated cells you know just the drawings so if you opened it up it would be a picture of Donald Duck and then you open it up and it looked like the same picture and picture but what you did is you flipped it right and just like a film frames in a film going forward it created motion Now you just look at any still image and it gave you some information well, there's Donald Duck there's Mickey Mouse but it didn't give you the whole story The whole story is only included in the motion, contained in the motion. As you flip the pages, then you got the story. This is what the early Eastern fathers are trying to tell us. If we take a look at any one person statically in the Trinity, in the Godhead, we do get some information, but we'll never get the whole story until we put it in motion. And we see what the interrelatedness is of these three you know, We talk about giving, but and we see God as the giver. We see God as provider. The Jews saw God as provider. But what does every giver need? A receiver. We talk about a lover, but a lover needs a beloved. And so what we're seeing here is that all of this connection... Giving and receiving, lover and beloved, is moving and moving back and forth in this blurred image. And only in the motion do we get a sense of what that's all about. How does this really work? All sorts of, um, all sorts of attempts to try to get this to make sense have kind of fallen flat. And here we are trying to understand again to see how in the world that we can understand this melding of motion and what it tells us about God's love. When we think about love this way, when we think about the way that lover and receiver are are interconnected in this movement, think about what we pray here, which has become one of the hallmark scriptures of the effect. We love because God first loved us, John 4.19. Remember that we had to receive something first before we had anything to give. So there is a flow to love, a flow to God's love that precedes us. We are part of that flow. If we can love anyone or anything, it's because God first loved us and that love flowed through us. It's all about the motion. It's all about the continuation of the breath, the continuation of the wind through us. Take away take a look at the way CS Lewis puts it again. He says All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. What Christians mean by the statement God is love is that they believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else, that movement through, always moving. To paraphrase, I think what, what Lewis is trying to say is that God loves us and loves everything because he first loved himself within Among, in the midst of himself. Which is exactly the way that Jesus describes kingdom. Don't look for it out there someplace. It's within. It's among. It's in the midst of. The same ideas. The same exact words here. And isn't that the same for all of us? We can't love others until in some way we love ourselves. And what does it mean to love ourselves? Well, I think at the very most basic level, it at least means that we count ourselves worthy to be loved by God. If we can't even do that, how in the world do we have anything to give to somebody else if we're not worthy of the basic acceptance of our Creator? And the tragedy is that there's so many of us who don't feel that way, don't feel worthy, haven't been taught that they are worthy, just as they are, of God's love, which was the hallmark of Jesus' teaching, We can only love others as we love ourselves, which is what the scriptures tell us, allowing God's love to flow through us. There's so much here about this motion that we have to try to get our arms around. We're not going to understand it logically but we can see the motion and how the motion carries us through. Another contemporary pastor, Jeremy Berg, writes, Please scrap your images of a lonely God hovering over dark, silent abyss, bored and looking for something to do. (laughs) (laughs) The universe did not spring into existence in order to give God something to do. Rather, the universe was created to give further expression to the rich and vibrant society of love and creativity it already existed within the Trinitarian community of the Godhead. The irresistible dance of the Trinity, full of life, full of joy, overflowing with love and goodness, could not contain itself, and it was only a matter of time before God expanded the scope of the dance and extended the guest list. I like that. Trinity is a relationship in motion, always in motion. Individual identity, individual form and function is all blurred into oneness in the midst of that motion. The giver is the receiver, the receiver is the giver, the lover is the beloved, and vice versa. It's all blurred because everything is being given at the same time in the midst of this dance, in the midst of this blurred action. Everything becomes one thing, even though the relationship exists and the exchange exists as well. St. Bernard of Clairvaux had a wonderful way of putting it. Listen to this. If, as is properly understood, the Father is he who kisses. You know, when you listen to the ancients, those first generations and centuries after Jesus, they had such a different way of expressing God. It was so emotional. It was so visceral. It was so connected. It was physical. He understands the Father as the one who kisses. When was the last time you heard that from the pulpit? We have gone so far afield from this kind of intimacy, from this kind of immediacy, from this kind of motion in relationship. If, as is properly understood, the Father is he who kisses, the Son is he who is kissed, then it cannot be wrong to see in the kiss the Holy Spirit For he is the imperturbable peace of the Father and the Son, their unshakable bond, their undivided love, their indivisible unity. Wow. Can we start to see Trinity that way? Take it out of the legal, mental, intellectual paradox that our minds would have it be and bring it down into something that is real that we can experience even if we don't really understand. And that's the key. We don't and can't understand this. But we can live it, and we can experience it, and we can love it. See, this is meaning of Trinity with teeth and traction. This is a meaning of Trinity that we can take to the bank, that we can bring into our lives. Because really what it's pointing to is a sequential unveiling of, a sequential unveiling of the nature of God's love. We're going to, as we move into this motion, get more and more of God's love downloaded to us. We're going to be able to understand it. How in the world that this works? How does this happen? Now, the followers of Jesus experienced God first in creation as God the creator, right? We talked about that. Then they experienced him in human relationship, So from outside themselves and the whole cosmos, the stars in the sky, now it comes down to a human relationship. And then they experienced him as a spiritual awakening from within to without. Do you see what's happening? From outside in to right beside, they first see God as king and judge, and then as Abba, as daddy, as friend, as brother, and then as an indwelling animating life force. And we see Jesus using so many images to try to get this across. Interestingly enough, three is the first stable number. Have you ever thought about that? The third leg on a table is what allows it to stand solid. The three of of Hebrew thought was the completeness and the fullness of that number. The nuclear family, father, mother, and child is the stable unit on which all of their society was built. All the tribes were built. The fullness and completion comes from the threeness. We are completed as a person. We are fulfilled as a person. As we enter this blurred motion of Trinity, as we actually bring it within ourselves. Jesus' image of the Eucharist is perfect for this. We bring into ourselves all that he is. We assimilate it into ourselves. What Jesus is doing is inviting us, exhorting us, strongly suggesting that we should join the flow. Join this flow. Stop standing on the outside looking at it, trying to understand it, but move in. Join. Become one with. Become part of the blurred motion of this threeness. Forgiver and receiver and everything is blurred. You remember when you were kids and you would go to the playground and there was a merry-go-round? Maybe they don't have merry-go-rounds anymore. I don't know. They still have merry-go-rounds on playgrounds? You remember these? Do you know what a merry-go-round is? It's round and round. So you'd come and your, kid, your friends were already on the merry-go-round and they're spinning and spinning and spinning as fast as they can. And as you look at them, it's just a blur, Right? It's just one thing: it's just this wheel of spinning blurredness, and then you run, you get up to speed, you grab on, you jump on, and then what happens? You're on the wheel with them. Suddenly, all their faces are distinct again, but the outside world is what's blurred. You see how this works? This is what we're being invited into. We look at the Trinity, and it's just this blurred thing. We can't understand it. We enter into the motion. We get up to speed, and we spin with it, and suddenly we can see within the distinct persons that allow the rest of everything to become one thing. This is what we're trying to, this is what we're being invited into. This motion, this playground activity, if you will. How do we do that? How do we get up to that speed? The thing is already spinning. It has never stopped spinning. It never will stop spinning. How do we get up to that speed so that we can join into what Jesus calls kingdom? This motion, constant motion. How do we match the speed of the circle dance? The first step, religion. Religion gives us a sense of God as king, God as judge. starts to put that first piece in place. Right, But then when we move from mere religion and mere thought and theology into the community of the church, that's where we move to the actual belovedness, to the friendship, to the brotherhood, sisterhood, to the Abba-ness, the intimacy of relationship. And then when we break through into contemplative spirituality, is when the spiritual awakening when the indwelling empowerment starts to take place because what's the word contemplative mean anyway it's really fascinating the the prefix con means with together connected in some way and then there's temple the actual word temple it's temple and con put together that gives us contemplative and what does temple mean i put it here for you So hopefully we can remember con, with, together, beside, near. Temple literally means to cut, to stretch, to reserve. What in the world? How does temple mean that? Because to the ancients, it was a matter of setting aside a place of worship. How did you do that? You had to measure. You had to cut out and take a place and reserve it for this. You took string and you stretched it and you measured off an area that was going to be sacred space in front of the altar. The word contemplative could literally mean to set aside a place of worship, reserve a cleared, measured space in front of the altar. And what does Paul tell us at uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16? Don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit dwells in you? Start putting these things together and see what's happening here. To be contemplative is to clear the space within your own temple to mark it and measure it and open it up, clear it before the altar so that something starts to take place within. The quieting of our mind, apophatic prayer. I mean, I don't know if I've used that word in here before. I'll put it down for you. Apo, again, Greek, off, apart, from, phanai to speak, tell or say. It's prayer without images. It's prayer without concepts. It's prayer without words. That's how we clear the space. Religion gives us the first piece, the father. The community of church gives us the son, the connection, the brotherhood. The silence of contemplative life gives us the indwelling. And the wordless connection from within to without that is bringing us more and more up to speed so that we can jump on the merry-go-round. We can jump on and join the circle dance and become part of that blurred motion, that beautiful connection. Why don't I speak more about spirit? You know, I never think of spirit as apart from any other person of the Godhead. If I'm talking about Jesus, I'm talking about spirit. If I'm talking about Abba, I'm talking about spirit. To me, there is absolutely no distinction. And every expression of God contains that blurred cloud of Father, Son, and Spirit in motion, always in motion. I don't really think of God conceptually anymore either. You know, the concepts or images of God as I had as a child have kind of fallen away, and I sort of resist those. I try not to name or imagine, but just come up alongside as much as I possibly can on a good day. That's what's happening, right? And so, without thinking, just trying to accept the motion of the relationship of the moment. Right now, in this space, you know, this is the relationship. You are who I'm connected to. I'm not trying to think about it. I have to think about the next word I'm saying, but I'm just trying to be present. If I'm one-on-one with someone, if I'm just alone, looking at palm trees, whatever it is, to just accept the motion of the moment and where it's taking me without trying to think about it, without trying to break it down. Because as soon as I break it down, I've got a static image, a static page. And that's not the story. I need to flip the book. I need to run the film. And this is how we do it. This is how Jesus is showing us how to do it. Every time he got overwhelmed, what did he do? He went back to the mountaintop, went out to a secluded place. He went into his prayer closet and reconnected by clearing the space, clearing the mechanism, and getting back into the motion. At Gethsemane, when he was so grieved and he was sweating blood, he got back into the motion and was able to finally say at the end of the night, as dawn was breaking, Not my will, but your will, because now we are one again. We are blurred in this motion where giver is receiver and receiver is giver. Trinity means that all of the threeness is always happening all the time at once without ceasing in this blurred motion. And we can't separate them because as soon as we do, they're not God anymore. They're a concept in our mind. If the merry-go-round ever stops, there's no spirit, there's no relationship, and there's no love. And so, what Jesus is saying: come dance. Get in the circle and spin with us in this infinite expression of love and relationship, where giving and receiving is all the same thing. Trinity. Love, it's all an expression of the same thing. If we take it out of our heads and bring it down to where we can really use it. Let's pray. Father, you are Father and you are Son and you are Spirit. We acknowledge all of you as best we can. We want to join in with you into as much as we can understand and then beyond what we can understand, just in the motion, just in the falling into, the free fall. Help us to lose our inhibitions about the dance. Help us to lay down anything that keeps us from getting up to speed, that is too heavy, that is too burdensome, unwieldy. Help us to lay it down. All we want to do is run with you, dance with you, move with you. So help us there, Lord. Help us to take the steps that we need to take. Help us to hear clearly the call of your spirit and of your presence that empowers us and allows us to fly with you. That's what we desperately want, Lord, whether we can express it or not. And whatever that looks like in our lives, and it'll look different in each one of our lives, Father, help us to find our own individual way of dancing with you. And then, Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you again for creating us so that we can have this relationship with you. It's amazing. Never let us forget that we can only love, we can only do any of this because you did it first and you flowed it through to us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's all stand.